0: Ever you do don't fall asleep I'm scared to close my eyes I'm scared to open them I'm gonna die out of here Of wounds and of children,
1: have you checked the
0: children?
2: Like, oh, my God, it's the nineteen eighties. With the Literary License Podcast retrospective of 80s horror films. With your co-hosts, Joe Radazzo, Vicki Ray, John Wilson, and Keith Shago, keeping everything tubular and rad. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are
0: watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, she wouldn't even climb a fly.
1: I'm
2: your number one fan. Hello, welcome to Literary License Podcast. And today we're interviewing E.G. Daly, also known as Elizabeth Daly. She is a singer, songwriter, actress, um, activist, and she's also a voiceover artist. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome to the Literary License Podcast.
3: Hello. Oh, you forgot one of the most important. Hi, you forgot one of the most other important things, which is mother.
2: Oh, yes.
1: Mother. Can't forget that,
3: yeah.
2: Mother of two girls, is it?
3: Yes, two amazing daughters. Yeah,
2: and that's not including your fur babies either. So,
3: yeah, I'm I'm just a mother across the board, (laughs) mama. Well,
2: I thought what we do is we start off talking about your film career, and one of your earliest films is actually "One Dark Night," starring Meg Tilly. So, how was that working in your first film?
3: Wow, that's enough. people don't really bring that one up that often. Um, <laughs> one Dark Night was fun. I, I did a batch of movies back in that time period. I did like Wacko, and I think I got my head chopped off a few times in a few different <laughs> movies, and you know, um, and that One Dark Night was a really interesting little small indie film, but um, you know, for some reason it had a big impact. It's really it's interesting to see the projects that you don't expect, you know, you don't have any expectations for. And then they end up having these cult, um, these cult, um, you know, this attraction to them. That's pretty cool.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It
3: was great. It was a great little film to work on. Yeah.
1: I enjoyed
2: and, it. I watched it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like Wondark. it. Was, <laughs> I thought and it was good. kind of <laughs> fun,
1: actually. <laughs> yeah.
2: And the director was on one of the favorite Yeah. Fridays it was good. Ones. It was a while
3: ago. Mm-hmm.
2: And then, of course, she went on um, one of the yeah, other. Yeah, that was films. a great director. Yeah, with Valley Girl, um, which basically became quite an influential yeah. film, actually. And there, yeah. you met your
3: quite influential. And you,
2: worked you went with to Deborah school Fulman. with
3: Nicholas
1: Cage, didn't you? Didn't I, I think mean? you said, "Yeah, <laughs>
3: I, I did." I went to high school with Nicholas. He was my friend, and over the years, we just hung out throughout our whole careers. We've been. I haven't seen him lately, but we used to run into each other and then we'd be like hang out. And, um, it's kind of like a tight, back then, a lot of the actors, you know, we all studied together. Nicholas and I went to high school together, but we also studied together at the Loft Theater with like Michelle Pfeiffer and Sean Penn and Chris Penn and, uh, Eric Stoltz and Meg Tilly, Meg Ryan, like a huge group of Michelle Pfeiffer. I think I said that, but yeah, it was this, um, yeah, Nicholas is one of those people I've just had a long history with, so and it broke his career. Valley Gold broke his career like wide open. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was fun. And he Deborah also- Foreman and I later became um roommates. It's funny mm-hmm. because at one point we we'd done the movie and then years later we became roommates. So it was pretty cool.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a- um i'm a huge fan of so i'm also a huge fan of deborah foreman's you know her work, like in wax work and my yeah. chauffeur and,
3: <laughs>
0: <She's, laughs>
2: and april fool's day of course
3: i'm a fan of hers i agree i think she's amazing plus i'm good friends with her and i adore her as a person
2: yeah Then, mm-hmm. from valley guru you went on to do walter hill's streets of fire which um i heard was quite a dark shoot considering everything had to be shot at night so how about shooting that
3: uh, that was, it was a huge production. It was huge. I remember just thinking, wow, this is like massive. And I think in the beginning, I, I auditioned for a character and then I didn't, I remember thinking like I didn't want to do it because I really, um, I remember originally when I read my agents, I like, go oh, read for this little character. Her name is Baby Doll. And I remember thinking, I don't want to do, I didn't want to do because I felt like it was, um, a filler character. Sometimes you can be a filler character, meaning like, you're just a little body they want to have in the, for the look or I don't know what it was, but to me, I was like at that point in my career where I was like, I don't want to be filler character. I want my Mm -hmm. character to matter. And I remember telling the director, um, telling my agents when they said, Oh, you booked that character. I was like, I don't think I want to do it. And my agents were like, why not? And I said, because it's filler. It's like filler character. And then while we were shooting, and then I finally just, you know, I agreed to do it because it was a really big film. Then, um, I had mentioned to the producer and the and the director that it was important to me that it mattered, and I remember I showed up on the set one day, and they had rewritten a whole scene that was about my connection to songwriting and how I felt about it with that with Diane Lane's character, and I was so happy because they heard me, and they actually wrote in this little scene that made that character to me more of a real character. So it was awesome. And it was, we filmed it in Chicago. And right in the middle of that, they had me booked out for a certain period of time. And they were paying me the whole time, even though I would just work a few days here and there. And then I booked, um, I think it was Fandango and they released me, even though they were still paying me to go film in Marfa, Texas for this Kevin Costner, or Kevin Reynolds feature called Fandango. Where I played this little, like, that's so cool, you know, she's like this little, you know, character. And, and, um, and we got to shoot that in the midst. So I went from like Chicago, the Universal lot, to Marfa, Texas, in the middle of being on, on contract for Streets of Fire. So it was a pretty fun time period. The whole thing, the filming of that was magnificent. On the lot at Universal was huge.
2: I have to sit there and say that once I've heard you sing, which will go into your songwriting career, I was really disappointed because, of course, they used a voiceover, um, a person to do the singing for Diane Lane, and I would have loved to hear hear you sing "Never Be You" and "Sorcerer" when they, you know, when they had those last, they had other people singing for her. Right? It's like oh, it's like you you could have done that.
3: You and me both, Keith. (laughs) You and me both, Keith. I was so frustrated. I was like, you know, I was like, I'm the real singer. I can sing. Diane can actually sing a little bit, though. That was was so cool. And um, but yeah, they had to use. It's the same thing in like the Demi Moore. What's the movie? I did No Small Affair, where no, they had no I played yeah. another character in No Small. Fair. Yeah, with Demi Moore, and they had to get a a singer to come in and do her song singing. And I was so frustrated all the time back then. A little bit, I was doing great stuff anyway. I was working with Georgia Maroder when I was really young and doing like all the singing for like you know. I did like the flash dance song with, you know, what a feeling that Irene Cara had the huge hit with. I sang that song before it was called what a feeling it was like, she's a lady or something. I sang all the demos, but I was definitely like when I'd get cast in a movie and I wasn't the singer, I was definitely frustrated, but, um, but I had so many other beautiful things happening. So that's why I was able to like, be like, it's okay. It's okay. You know? Yeah.
1: Well, you-, you ever stick your hand
3: up and say, pick me, pick me. <laughs> oh yeah, I did, and sometimes, and sometimes, in some things, they actually did. Like sometimes, I, Vicky, I would like, you know, Rugrat soundtracks were coming out, and they were going to all these big name artists, and I'd be like, I got a great song for this soundtrack, you know, like one of the soundtracks. There was a song I'd written called "Changing Faces," and I had just cut it, and it was a really strong song about like showing one face to some people and showing another to another and I remember they were putting together the soundtrack and I asked um, the main CEO of Nickelodeon at the time he was my friend and he I asked him come into my car for a second I want to play you something you know and and he was like okay each you know of course they totally had open ears for me because I was their Tommy Pickles and he came and sat in my car with me, and I played him the song. And then he was like, that's a really cool song. And I was like, thanks. I thought maybe it might work for your soundtrack because it was the whole um, Thornberry's Rugrats crossover, and it just worked with something about it, changing faces. And and I didn't hear anything about it, you know, and it was a very light exchange. He said, yeah, it's a cool song, and I just let it go because at least I got a word in. And the next thing you know, like two months later, he calls me, and he's like, EG, remember that song you played me in the car? Remember that song? And I was like, yeah, Changing Faces." He goes, I really want to put that song in the soundtrack. Can you send it to me? And I was like, sure. And it ended up being in the end credits of a huge film. So yes, Vicky, pick me, pick me sometimes does work. <laughs> you know, as long as you know the right moments to kind of slip in and talk to people. And it's not usually like in some heavy, you know, set up crazy meeting. Sometimes it's like, come in my car with me for a second. I'm going to show you something. You know, or you're at a club or you're at a dinner, you know. Here, look at this picture. I want to show you this cool thing I did. And then those are the moments that you can reach people because you're having a real human interaction with them. You're See, not like, a I'm a person working and I'm going to show you my work. I find that. Here
0: we go another day. Looking for another way. Tired to take in the back seat. Carry on from place to place Hold our heads up, smile with grace but are for tears and no escape Hold on, can you see me? Take off your shoes and sit for a while I'd like to know If you hear what I'm saying now
3: Yeah. And most of my jobs came that way. Most of my jobs, film work, TV work came when I was at a barbecue. I met my husband at a barbecue, you know, I ended up getting married and having kids with this man. at from a barbecue, I, you know, I, you know what I'm saying? Like those little spontaneous moments. I'd be in a movie theater, line for a movie theater, my sweats with a hoodie on. People would be like, "Easy, Daily, right? We have a great movie for you. And I'm like, okay, I'm right here. You know? Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, the, yeah. we did get to see you singing Better Off Deads because you got to do two songs for that, which are really...
3: Yeah, that was again, but guys...
2: I, was saying, I, I actually really like he- those songs a lot. I had to actually um, take those songs and actually put them on a CD. um, Oh, yeah,
3: no, they're great. It's hard to find them. That was another one of those I had um, met uh, Savage Steve Holland. uh, I'd run into him, I think, at a restaurant, the director of that film, and he had been drawing cartoons on a napkin because he was going to do some cartoon. I can't remember the timing of it, but I remember he showed me some little caricature on a napkin, this um um cozy bears thing or something and I remember that I met him and then I don't know if it was before or after but then they were he was calling saying like I couldn't decide but I wanted to see if you'd come in for this movie I either wanted you to be the lead French girl or the singer at the thing and since you're the singer I want to give you that part but it was like again I ran into him at a restaurant he was drawing cartoons on a napkin then later after that he ended up uh he ended up Casting me in this Cozy Bears thing, the little characters he was drawing on a napkin, so I did this cartoon for him. You know, it's like, it's so interesting.
2: Then, of course, she um, went on to P's big adventure with Daddy. unknown director <laughs> Tim Burton. <laughs> so what was that experience like? Because he was, you know, it was very unknown at that time. Because I think this is the first time he actually was dealing with people filming. Because before that, he was doing stop motion yeah. animation, animation.
3: He was, um, he had done that movie Frankie Weenie, I guess. Or what is it? Frank- um, Frankie Weenie, I think? And yeah. I guess they were talking yeah they were like really excited about them and saying, like we got this young director and um and then I just went on a regular casting. I mean, I was just like it was a Warner Brother casting, and I guess they had a lot of the quirky actresses come in, like Julie Brown, the comedian, Julie Brown. there's two Julie Browns, and then uh some other quirkier actresses, and I was sort of in that quirky kind of mode, and then, yeah, I remember like thinking when I got cast, like I had no idea. I knew Pee Wee Herman because he did a show at the Roxy. He did the Pee Wee's Playhouse at the Roxy Theater, which was my town, you know? But, um, yeah. And then I remember thinking while we were filming, like, he's kind of like a mad scientist, like a genius mad scientist. And he was very particular about everything. And then he turned out to be this brilliant mad scientist. who's just created such incredible bodies of work. So, I think everybody could see it then and I think people just gave him that shot for that big movie and gave Paul Rubens that shot for that big feature and that just like broke broke everybody open. It was a really awesome experience and that was a timeless occult classic Pewey's Big Adventure. So yeah, it's cool. Absolutely. Answered
2: my question before we got a chance to ask it. I was going to ask if there's any indication that Tim Burton was going to yeah. blow up the way he did. Also, Phil Hartman as a writer blew up from that.
3: Um, That's right, Joe. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of... You could feel the energy around it. You could feel the studio's enthusiasm for the project. You could tell by how much how detailed the sets were um, on the lot, the sets were really meticulously built and you were like, wow, they're putting a lot of, a lot into this. So um, a lot of people, sometimes when the flow is right, the flow is right, you know, and that was definitely a flow project. It was definitely in flow. So and I, I feel blessed because I feel like I've been in a lot of those. That's why I think it's really important not to push things too hard because when you're on the current of the flow, you're being ride down that river. When you're grabbing the sides of the riverbanks too tight, you are not allowing yourself to be in the flow. You don't get those awesome rides. And so I try to, like, when I find myself grabbing too tightly, trying to push my career one way or another, I try to really relax when I'm getting too, like, A little desperate or urgency. I just go like, chill out, relax, get back in flow, get back to doing what you love. And then all of a sudden things, you know, I was back to even during COVID when they finally decided, no, right before COVID, they decided to pick up Rugrats again, but it was at a time period where we had to like, it hadn't been for so long and they were starting to talk about picking it up. But, um, that was in another time period in my life where I was like, what am I going to do next? You know, and then I remember, ah, just relax. Something's going to come. And I started doing all these music videos during COVID. We started recording graphs before COVID, just a little before, but during COVID, I remember thinking like, I got a little nervous, like, my God, everything shut down, everything stopped and what's going to happen, you know, but then I stopped and remembered, enjoy this moment. This is a moment to be present, a moment to take walks with my daughters, a moment to enjoy not having to hustle or grind or push anything. And that was like an incredible experience. And then out of that I did three new music videos. I never do that many videos. I, you guys, if you know my music, I always, I do my own videos most of the time. I just produce them, direct them and work with my great team of friends. And I just put them out. And during COVID, I put three out just because I was relaxed and I kept getting inspiration, you know, even during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that tangent went off on, but there you go.
1: I think a lot of people took advantage of that time period because no one really expected to have that much time off from anything and to chill with your family, basically, and to do things you wanted to catch up on. So it makes sense. It
2: was supposed to be two weeks. I ended up sitting at home for six months. I ended up up being creative. It was, you know, the most creative time I've had in a long time. So it worked out.
3: And also, you know, it changed people's lives because, a lot of people had been stuck in a rut um, and all of a sudden everything had to change. And some people actually decided I'm not really happy in LA. I'm going to get out of here. Some people decided I don't want to live in Kansas anymore. I'm going to get out of here. Like people had this new freedom, a new freedom to explore with real change because they weren't being held down because of their job because now they could work from wherever they were on their internet. So, I think there was something very beautiful about what COVID burst in a lot of people. Right, you know, God bless a lot of people got sick and a lot of people lost a lot of people. But still, mm-hmm. um, on the other side of it, there was a lot of beautiful things born from it. Exactly.
0: exactly.
2: Now I want to talk about one of my favorite roles that you've ever done is in Dogfight with River Phoenix and Lily Taylor. Um, what was the shooting yeah. of that like? Because that was quite an intimate film. That
3: um,
2: surprisingly enough is now has its own Broadway music- has its own musical version of now. But <laughs>
3: <laughs> what? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. There's there's an off wow, Broadway musical to, Dogfight her- now
3: is there a character that's my character in that? You got to send me a link on that. If you have one, Keith, I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, yeah I cool. will send you a link. Um, it, that was so. another,
3: that was another interesting movie because I, um, I really wanted to read for the Lily Taylor role. Um, and Lily is a brilliant actress. I didn't know she was going to be up for that. role. I didn't know who was up for that role at the time. She was great. She was perfect for that role. And she's such a beautiful woman, like cool lady. Um, but I remember thinking, I want to read for the lead, the lead character, and and um, and then they were like, "Oh no, whatever, whatever." They said no, and then and then they sent me this weird character, and I was like, I had a real affinity for her, the dogfight character, and I remember thinking, this is a really interesting part for me. And they were like, "You're too little," you know. They wanted somebody maybe heavier. Um, they wanted somebody a little funny or quirkier looking for that character because she's the winner of the dog fight, the ugliest girl at the dance. And I was like, I could do this role. And I remember, um, I really like transforming. You know, I I like to change how I look like it's my favorite thing to do. And I remember that I shoved a giant wad of gum up under my, the roof of my mouth. When I read for that role, giant wad of gum. So I basically was talking like this and (laughs) everything was coming out. weird. And, um, and then, you know, I played my character like though she had rotten teeth and a messed up mouth. I actually played it as if I thought I was the most badass person at the dance, but that everyone was so stupid and they were so ignorant. They didn't realize that my teeth could be just fixed with it, just popping in my fake teeth. You know, I just pop in my fake teeth and I was the prettiest girl there. So I played my character as if I thought I was the dopest girl at the dance, which was a weird way to play it. And then I ended up booking the role, which was really crazy. And then they built me these weird prosthetic rotten teeth. And I don't know, that casting director was awesome because she really saw whatever it was that I was going for. And it was opposite of what she probably would have cast normally. But she was so good with her casting. I think she's a brilliant casting director. But she was so awesome. So, yeah, that was another. And working with River was really beautiful and interesting. It was one of the later movies before he passed... Um, and and uh, Lily was amazing. I remember we worked with all these young, great talented guys. Um mm-hmm. I think the guy that was my, my date for the dance that was like member of the mafia is, he was really genuinely a member of the mafia or something. His family <laughs> was, So it was a really cool project. And I especially loved the, um, the black beef beehive bouffant that I got to wear. And the, the style <laughs> of the, the piece was so cool that like, the time period was really cool. So, I mean, that was just a gem of a, a part to get to play, you know? Yeah.
2: I mean, I think another amazing thing about Dogfight also, it, um, has, has the activist Holly near in it as well, playing Lily Taylor's mom, which is quite phenomenal to actually see her. Cause it's, she's so, she's one of these people they hear on records all the time. And she has got such a fantastic songwriting yeah. career and, and, um, and her activism is yeah. always above par, but. Actually, have to actually see her, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Dogfight, Dogfight is, um, yeah, Dogfight was a really cool movie. The people that got to see it, I always tell people, go watch that movie, there's some great, plus, River Phoenix is in it, and we don't have him, and we didn't have mm-hmm. him long after that,
1: you know. That was so sad, and, um,
3: yeah, yeah, it was sad, and you could actually see, um, during that movie. Um, I spent a lot of time. We all spent a lot of time together. We were in um, Seattle, I think. And you could actually see the beginnings of something troubling. Like I could see, um, it was almost like, you know, that whole thing of life imitating, art imitating life. It's like Mm -hmm. River was like in this like smoker, drinking. We'd go to the hotel rooms and everybody'd be playing, drinking, and... You could see that he was really young and it was the very contrasty the way, cause he was vegan and, you know, then yeah. it was interesting cause you're like, but he's smoking, he's smoking. I always had attention to that cause I was always into like, you know, you know, just saying healthier as opposed to, you know, excessive anything. And, um, and also I remember him drinking a lot. Like I remember him having drinking excessively thinking, Oh, he's so young to be drinking like that. And, um, and he was in character a lot because his character was always smoking and and I just thought, you know, art, can you know, life can imitate art, you know. And right. He was sort of in character, mm. and I just remember it was very interesting that whole time period. And then when I heard he had passed, it was like it was super tragic because he's such a beautiful Gary. young guy and super talented. And mm. yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: I, mean, I guess yeah. another thing I guess with Dogfighter as well that he had this haunted look about him when he's acting and in his role so and I guess that maybe from his personal yeah. life that was transpiring onto the screen as well so.
1: possibly yeah it
3: was yeah. it definitely was I could see it
2: started working, doing some work with George Miller. Um, we cover a couple of George Miller films. We've done this Mad Max series, but you did, um, of course, Babe in the City, Happy yeah. Feet. Um, he also, didn't he also direct Lorenzo Oil and he played the voice <laughs> the <child in> that? <laughs> so what's it like working? Um, George Miller is one of these um, ac- directors that people just think of as something, but the thing is, there's always an activism um, message every single thing that he does. So how did that come? You know, And you seem to be doing, you he, he, he seem to have multiple um, projects going with him. So what's it like working with George Miller?
3: Yeah. Well, first of all, you've really done your homework, Keith. It's really awesome. It's awesome <laughs> to do an interview with somebody who's really done the work. So thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. George Miller was awesome. I think the first thing I did for him was I think the first thing I did for him was Lorenzo's Oil. And, um, that was a very interesting movie. It was Academy Award winning, I think, like, or nominated with Susan Sarandon and and Nick Nolte, I guess. Yeah. Um, that just for people who don't know was a, it was about a boy and it was based on a true story who had a sickness and where the myelin in the brain is deteriorating and he starts to lose his ability to speak. And they found this oil that was actually helping that that particular illness and um and so I got it was a weird I mean it was in a weird niche I've always been in this weird niche because I was able to do little boy voices and imitate boy sounds and and so I guess they did this search to find someone who could sound like that boy when the boy started to get ill meaning like he was normal at the very beginning of the movie and then he starts starts start, losing speech you know I went right by you know he starts losing his ability to talk and and so I I remember booking that and that was my first experience with George and I remember George was we'd have to be in the I have such great respect for that man he's one of my favorite directors ever George Miller and I love him dearly and um such a beautiful man and I remember we would be in this giant sound stage with a giant screen and a microphone pitch down on the ground and I would be lying on the ground and the mic would be by my mouth and George would be on top basically of me pressing on my ribs. Like if you were doing CPR on someone and he was a doctor, I think at one point or mm. something. And I yeah, remember I him know. having to press so that, so that he could get the kind of convulsive sounds he wanted for the boy in convulsions. So it was like, you know, it was like this crazy thing. <laughs> and, um, I remember, and then I'd stand in front of him, and he would sit in a chair, and he would just have his hands around my rib cage, and he'd be, like, squeezing my ribs like that. And he'd be like, your ribs are cracking. And I'd be like, yeah, George, you're you're squeezing my ribs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> <And>, Make um, <laughs> it easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um but then what was so awesome was then he later, um yeah, then the whole thing with Babe came up, and... He did Babe, which is such a contrast from Lorenzo's oil to Babe to Happy Feed to Mad Max, like Mad Max obviously game before. But he's such a that's a tribute to his amazing directorial talent. Like he's so genius and
1: big range. And I remember
3: them calling me in for babe and big range. I remember him calling me in for babe and uh, he's my kind of director because I really like expanding myself all the time. I like doing a Crazy horror film on camera, and then doing a kids' cartoon, and then doing a—you know—I like range and I like versatility. Definitely I, I have like range.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it's because I'm—I'm I'm limitless, you know. I, I'm a limitless, and I've—I've—I've mm. I've, I've stretched the bounds of my body with my voice, and so mm. I just never want to be limited by any anything, especially like the body, you know, mm. you know, size, hair—you can mess with all that, you know. It's so fun. But, um, so, um, so yeah, so then I, they called me for Babe and I guess they were trying to replace my friend, Chris Kavanaugh who I worked with on Rugrats for so many years. Um, they guess they were having negotiation issues and they were like, oh, um, we're not going to be able to use Chris on Babe, um, on the second Babe, uh, Babe 2 and I want to know if you'll read for it. And I was like, oh no, I can't read for that role because I knew that it was Chris's role, and um, I didn't want to uh, get in the way of her negotiations and be like, oh, it's okay. We don't have Chris. We can just go get EG. She knows how to do that sound because I worked with Chris a long time. And I we had a similar tone in in some respects, you know, and with kids' voices. And I was like, no. I said, but I'd love to read for something else in it. So I actually read for another character in Babe, a boy, a little monkey-type character. And he was like... um, um Uh, they cast me in that and then they recast Chris's part. And then a week before recording that I got a call, I was sitting on a beach and I got a call on my cell phone from George Miller from Australia, Miss Daly, Elizabeth, you know, um, I'd like to ask you a question. And I was like, yeah, George, what is it? I was kind of like walking around. I'm at the beach and George Miller's calling me on the phone and he said, um, we really have been listening to the uh, the tapes and though we've cast you in this other role and we already recast um the babe role with somebody else. Sorry, I dropped something. Um, we were wondering now, since we've re we've recast um the character, if uh we keep hearing the tapes and you're you sound like our babe. And I was like, Wow, that's interesting, you said you sound like babe and I said, I think at this point I would I would take that role at this point, yeah. And so they swapped mm-hmm. roles, I think. And I was I was happy and the other person I think I believe got the other role and so I was happy about that and and it worked out. And I did that role and then I went on later to do Happy Feet One and Happy Feet Two. And the second Happy Feet we did in Australia, which was so beautiful because I got to work with um Robin Williams and spent a lot of time with him then. Um yeah. and also Elijah Wood and spent a lot of time with him running around Australia and going to the zoo when we had a day off. And it was just a beautiful Hank Azaria and Sophia Virago was in that. I didn't spend time with her there, but it was a really beautiful cast. Too. And we got to spend a lot of time together there. So it was cool.
2: And you got your own soliloquy to sing as well. Um, Eric's op- op- opera or Odyssey. I can't believe really I remember. The that was amazing.
3: It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eric's opera. So that was um <laughs> That was actually a combination of myself and an opera singer that they had sped up. There was an actual opera singer they brought in, and and um, so they kind of morphed our voices, just like they morphed Baby Mumble into Elijah Wood. They went at one point, my voice was overlaid with Elijah's, and then Elijah took over at one point in that movie. That's like the magic of movie making and sound. That's why sound people are so important. So yeah, it was pretty cool.
0: After all you have done, you really deserve better. Nothing makes sense in this world. It's all a big pile of crazy. And the kids.
2: Then your um, film career took a turn where you become part of Rob Zombie's character yeah. characters now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like,
1: I love you as that said. You were great. <laughs> you, were, you were so hungry. <laughs> you got to really ply <laughs> your trade in that one, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I
3: love that. I love that. That was really a, a, an awesome role. And that was another Rob just called me like. He called me for the first movie. Um um what's her name um she was in um orange is the new black uh curly hair natasha yeah so, yeah
2: natasha yeah
3: i think i think i think devil's rejects um yeah. natasha was supposed to do that character and i think some something happened where she didn't make the flight or something happened and they were in, they were shooting that day and she was coming from somewhere else. And I guess Rob was like had me in his mind as a backup. If you know, uh, and then I got this random call. I was at my voice agents going, We just got a call for you for this Rob Zombie movie. Um, they want you to um, they're interested in you doing this role, and I was like, Oh, cool. Let me I didn't know it was Rob Zombie at first. I just they just said it's a project. And then I was like, Let me see the sides, and I loved it. It was like this crazy bar. Like Hooker, you know, Candy oh, was, was like was this was crazy. crazy. Got to wear these Star Wars braids. And I was like, I love this role. And I was like, I'll do it. Win. <laughs> and the dialogue and is today. Awesome. they said, I loved it. It was so crazy. It was right up my alley. And I was like, I want that. <laughs> and they were like, well, it's yours. The only thing is you've got to be on the set in within two hours. And, and I was to, like, the, what?
1: Got to work normally normally A,
3: my schedule... Yeah, I got okay. to work with all those guys, but normally my, what was that? He's it, like amazing. With? Just as kooky as he as appears he looks- and also <laughs> sweetheart. He's just a dope dude, like the dopest guy, like so cool and, um, funny. And, um, yeah, he's, he was awesome. I was so glad I got to work with him. And yeah. And, uh, Rob is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Rob is an amazing director. Actually, you wouldn't know because he's like this crazy-looking rocker dude. That's so right, too. Like really cool. And then you show up on the set, and here's this like rocker man, and he's like, okay. and he's very particular. Like Rob was very part of everything. Like when I was getting wardrobe fitted, he would come into that wardrobe trailer and he picked with you everything. He was like, I want her in this thing, and I want her in that. He's very visual. And which makes it so cool because everything I'm wearing, well, I think for, yeah, for candy, like I got to wear these cool little micro dresses with cool go-go boots and like everything was so in little negligee, short purple thing with like bloomers, right. and, and he's very particular and I love that. I love being dressed up and um, he was all about that. And then when Sex Head came around for 31, um, he had, of course, he had already drawn the character he had already drawn me with um my leading man character right um who he he was so tall he was
1: like <laughs> like six foot looks so I know, small eight next to him
3: yeah but what happened it was, was like then robin called me <laughs> yeah i love him death head uh, is it death head death head uh, is it death head death head yeah. yeah then robin called me and said I got another movie for you, EG, and I was like, yay! Cause when Rob calls, you, you know you're gonna be doing something cool. Right. And then he sent me pictures. He sent me pictures. And they had already drawn some sketches. You can go online and look up sex head and death head photos. And he had already drawn pictures before he cast me, before he told me that I had the role. Cool. And that was me. They were drawing and I was looking at like, that looks like me. And the size difference is me and my death head leading man. And he's a brilliant actor. And the character had like, when they brought my wardrobe in, it was like in a plastic baggie, um, on a hanger that you pinch And in this little, it wasn't even a full-size plastic baggie. It was like a snack-size plastic baggie. And all it was was two pieces of masking tape in the shape of an X and these little white fluffy bloomers, which we picked, and then these funny tops, which Rob and I and Mordro were done until we picked the right one. And then we found these giant boots, and Rob was very particular. And I was like, I want them to be really big, almost like, a man size on my little stick legs and Rob was like yes and you know it was just a really fun process and then that character you know um, sex head just came to life these are really my cool. favorite clowns <laughs>
2: it, it sounds like you're just at a point Yeah.
0: you're
2: just at the point with Rob Zombie where he just calls you now you don't audition or anything you're just part of like his, his stable I never
3: family. Yeah. I've never auditioned for Rob. Yeah. And then once I think I did the first movie, then he just was able to go, EG's my girl for this or you know and that's awesome because when you get in the Rob stable, you're it's really cool. Everybody hopes they're in the next Rob And he sometimes skips around, like he'll he'll use me in one and then he'll then he won't use me in the next, like I wasn't in the last one. And then he'll decide to do another one and then you'll get a random call from him. But he always has you in his Rolodex of his cast of of clowns or cast of his little cast that he likes. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I quite like the way again, he as you does notice, like his own stage troupe. That's what I, it always reminds me of like a stage troupe. Cause, cause Orson Welles used to do I that I love as well.
3: that. Yeah. And then you know what you're getting and you know, you know, your actors, you know what they're capable of. And again, you'll notice like all these movies I'm telling you about um, very few of them were came from a regular audition for me. Very few. You know, very few of them. I think Pee Wee's Big Adventure I did audition for, but you know, very few movies. Valley Girl, Valley Girl 2 I auditioned for, but most, a lot of my projects came from like just weird word of mouth or a strange party or, you know, you know, even my, like my biggest hit record, Say It Say It was the number one dance hit all over the world. And that came because I was at a, barbecue, it's a small world, but like Lori Rodkins, a famous, amazing jewelry designer. And she, um, she actually designed this ring, which was my um, wedding ring. Um, but uh, she's an amazing designer. And she was managing back then with Billy Gerber, who was a big, um, who has also gone on to be big executive for big studios. And Billy Gerber and Lori had this management company. They had like Robert Downey Jr. and Sarah Jessica Parker. And, uh, um, myself and just a slew of actors at the time. And I remember Billy, my manager said, we're going to go to a party. I think it, it might've been at Lori's house or something. And, and I had just gotten this record deal and uh, my manager said, and I was very familiar with the jelly bean stuff because he had done Madonna, like get into the groove, all that Madonna stuff. And I had just was starting production on my album with AM and records and Billy introduced me to Jellybean, and he's like, "Oh, Jellybean, this is CG Daily. We're just gonna cut, start cutting a record. You guys should do a, a couple tracks together." And Jellybean's like, "Cool, let's do it." And I didn't, you know, I wasn't thinking anything. I was like, Cool, oh, you know, that's a good manager though. That takes you to the right party, you meet the right people." And I think I ended up dating Jellybean at that time. We, he, he said, "Yeah, we're gonna work together." Next thing you know, he's like, calls me that night and he's like, "What are you doing tonight?" And I'm like. I don't know. He's like, you want to come to the Grammys with me? And I was like, Ugh. sure. And next thing you know, mm-hmm. we go to the Grammys and then we end up dating. But then we also did cut um, our record with Stephen Bray and writing and Jelly Bean and the Squirrel Tony C. And we had a number one dance it all over the world. But from being at a party, like right place, right time, having fun, not trying so hard to make things happen. Again, it was another example of being in flow, You know? Mm-hmm.
2: the same thing happened with your um, voiceover because you, um, you came on the wave of the new animation that was right. happening with Rugrats or Tommy Pickles. That was meeting a part. Per- that, that's another situation where basically you didn't audition it was kind of like you knew someone who, and you met someone, wasn't it? The-
3: no. Rugrats, um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: I had not done any voiceover. I had done a play, a musical that mm-hmm. um, is called Tansy in a short in a short story, Tansy was a play done on Broadway and it folded on Broadway and it starred Deborah Harry and it was about a female wrestler and it was a musical. And so each round of the play, the person who was the lead had to be able to sing and age themselves from a baby to a five year old, to a 10 year old, to a 16 year old, to an adult. So it was a female wrestling play and the play folded on Broadway. And I knew a guy named Bruce Lazarus who called me and said, um, E.G., we had this play that folded on Broadway, the John Daly, Hemdale Company, and we're shipping the sets to L.A., and I want to know if you want to do this role. And I was like, do I get to sing in it? And he's like, yeah, it's a musical. And I'm like, do I have to put the band together? I was so naive at the time, because I was like, I wanted to be singing, and I didn't have the money at that time to be putting a band together. And... um I didn't have the money to put a band together. So it was like, yeah, yeah, no, it's a pro play and you'll, um, anyway, so, um, I said, he said, it's a pro play and it's going to be fun. And I was like, I'll do it. And I learned how to wrestle, how to be a pro female wrestler. I did do Irish head mares and belly flops. And, um, anyway, I did this play and, and in the play, I had to age my voice up and, um, it became very successful. I ended up winning all these theater awards, and I didn't expect any of it. I just wanted to be singing, and that's where I said yes to the play and saying yes to the play, which, again, was in flow with what I was in alignment with. I was just wanting to sing. Um, all of a sudden, some guy, opening night at the Roxy Theater, the Roxy Theater, which is where Pee Wee's Playhouse premiered and broke. Now, I was there doing Tansy, and opening night there was like standing room only, and it was a big it had gotten tons of great press. So everybody was there. I got a major record deal. I got a, I had fallen in love with somebody. That's when I fell in love with, it was actually the smaller theater where I met John Eric Hexler, who became my boyfriend, the actor who um, passed away, but that's a whole other story. But anyway, I met him and fell in love. And then at the Roxy theater, I ended up getting this voice agent who said, you should try voiceover. You're really good with your voice. And I was like, And I called him up just to stay respectful because it was a yes. It was like, I feel like when opportunities come to you, you need to always, you know, be open, be willing because you never know what it's going to lead to. So I said yes to that. And then the first audition he sent me on was that Rugrats. And I didn't, I almost didn't go on it because I was remodeling my apartment at the time and I didn't want to leave that day because I had people there working. And he was like, you should go on this audition. I was like, I'll get you on the next one. I'm a little busy today. Remember I'd never done them. I didn't know. He goes, no, I think you should go on it. And I was like, no, I'll get you on the next one. And he was like, just go on this one. And I was like, okay. So I ran to this audition. I'm like, I'm really, out of running. I have to go very quickly because, you know, I'd never done a voice audition. And then I did the audition. I ran out of there and my agent called and said, um, you did really well in that audition. I was like, great. I didn't know what, you know, and he said, you booked it. And that was Tommy Pickles on Rugrats. So it was my first experience with a cartoon, you know.
1: My kids love those
2: shows when they were young. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's iconic now, isn't it? it Rugrats is. is now an icon, yeah. and of course that would lead to another iconic: role as Buttercup and Powerpuff Girls.
1: Love Buttercup. <laughs> My daughter loved Buttercup. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. We
3: love Buttercup. She's feisty. Yeah, that was a great. Um, that was a great thing too. And that was another. Hold on, Renkin. Can... Oh. That was another great um, project. And Again, we, um, we, um, we went on that audition when Craig McCracken, who's the creator, was probably like, seemed like he was only 17 or 18 years old. He looked like a little kid. And, um, and that was a really crazy um, thing because we're all looking at him like, and then the series, we did this pilot, we got cast and they were still not sure what, who was playing which role um but anyway yeah so we didn't expect anything from that and they were still trying to figure out who was which part they picked tar and i and kathy but they weren't sure and they were playing with their voices and then they felt like eg's the feisty one and then tara's the sweet bubbly one and kathy's the, the smarter like in order one so um and then that show didn't start happening until years later like maybe like seven or eight, seven years later, we get a call. Remember that pilot you read for Craig McCart, cracking that young guy? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, they want to do a series. And so it was a really interesting thing. Like, you never know. And that thing just blew up.
2: your recording career and i have yeah. to and say that i was actually um I, I was a fan of your acting work and then i found out you were doing an album at that time i was in college in tulsa and basically i was working in a record yeah. shop and yeah. wild child came out no it did get delayed for quite a few weeks it's <laughs> like every every week go, Is it out yet no it's been delayed sort of thing but when it did yeah. come out it was yeah. i don't think many people um you know, who know your acting career or know your voiceover work actually know that you're a fantastic singer-songwriter, yes. and most right. of the songs on that album and you know subsequent albums after that you wrote. So, what was it like to actually be underneath a major label and record your first album?
3: Well, remember that that deal came from that little play that I did, and mm. so it was awesome. And I had been doing music and. I'd been a local sunset strip girl my whole life since I was 14, 15. I was up on the strip playing in different bands and playing in different configurations. So I was, I was always out there. That was my, my, my love was singing. My connection to my whole soul is in singing, which is all about the voice, right? Which is why voiceover works for me. But, um, yeah. So when I got the deal on A&M, it was a pretty big deal. It was a pretty big deal. And I remember cutting that record and, they had like a big record release party and it was actually for me and Janet Jackson. And they were like, Mm -hmm. these are our two female singers that we're going to release right now. And I remember thinking that was before Janet had blown up or anything. And Mm -hmm. they had this big party. I remember say it, say it's our taking off on the dance charts and Janet's record was taking off too. And then I remember them, my song like flew number one on the dance charts and subsequent, I had other singles that came out that were dance records. Mind you, I was doing acoustic, like pop rock. I was like a rock singer, you know, but Mm -hmm. I had that one few singles from the jelly bean project, you know, uh, working with jelly bean. And, and then I worked with Harold Fultemeyer as well. And so, you know, that just took off. Like that wasn't really, I was, I was a little acoustic guitar, almost country rock singer. You know, Mm. but it sort of just happened. And, and, but then I remember watching AM like push the buttons for Janet. She was a Jackson, you know, Mm. and they, I remember watching my record, my record hit all these marks on the dance chart, but they needed to push it to the pop chart to really take up. And I remember them pushing and I remember them all of a sudden pushing this Janet thing up and i remember my pop my dancing was still doing really well in dance but nobody was underneath me popping right. it mm-hmm. up to the top cuz they they all went underneath and started pushing janet's record because of the jackson thing and she's a really talented girl and um so you know awesome but it was also it yeah. was a uh, tough for me to watch that
0: Lost in silence of my heart Crying for angels Crying for light Crying for someone tonight
1: Playing a metal band called Slave. Yeah, how would you hear about that? Oh, I do. That
3: (laughs) That was where? Where did you find that info? Did you find any videos or pictures
1: from that? I believe it was an interview you had done. You got to find that for me because I'll I'd have to find it that. for you. Cause yeah. I, I I go through, I read everything and I go through interviews. Well, you send that to me if you could like, slave I will, was one of I my favorite. It, yeah, I'm pretty sure I could find it again. I think it's where I, awesome. I think you were talking about, you got your, you got get a little guitar when you were eight years old and a little instructional book. And that's how you started. Yeah.
3: You're- yeah. That's how I started. And slave was a really interesting project because, um, slave was my friend, Drack, who is a great, um, guitar player. And, um, and Drac um was dating a girl named Bobby Bratt, who was really talented and really really cool girl, very rockabilly back in that day and very talented, like and she was the lead singer of Slave and Drack and Bobby were boyfriend and girlfriend and they Bobby um got ill with cancer and passed away and that band was like we have all this great material and we have this incredible band and we wanna know if you'll step in. And I was like, Wow, what an honor. Like um, it was Bobby's project and I got to breathe life back into that project. And um she was real young, just beautiful girl. And and um then I added some of my own songs and the thing just blew up and we were like we had lines around the block. We were like locals at the coconut teaser with Len That's Fagan great. And, yeah, we literally, like, standing room, lines around the block, people turned away at the door. It was really – I wish there was more documented on that band because it really was something special. I have a lot of footage from it. I just have to try to find some of it. But it was a metal band, and, and it was amazing. And, um, yeah, I just wish that – there is, there is some documentation on it. I just can't – I got to find it. But it's really – one of my favorite bands ever. I'll send you so. what I find. I yeah, just Googled it now. I didn't know
0: about
2: it. So this is super cool.
3: Did you find anything on it?
2: A tweet from you. That's uh so far that's <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll look Aww. some more after after we're done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can't
2: Now, your first association with Georgia Marauder, as far as recording goes, was on the Scarface soundtrack, which right. would actually get extra life in the Grand Theft Auto games. But yeah. uh, we, <laughs> nice. did two song- we did two songs on um, the Scarface soundtrack, which yeah. is qu- quite exciting, actually, um, because that would actually yeah. lead to you doing some of the most iconic backing singer for Philip Oakey and the Georgia Marauder album. Yeah, Phil which, Oakey.
3: Yeah, that's
2: funny. I mean, I love your when you get to say your let's shake it up song, we can say shake it up and uh, be my lover now, which you got yeah. a little, got some little personality, your personality into those songs, which I really, yeah. really enjoyed.
3: Yeah. That was um, awesome. I love doing those, um, you know, cause that, that Georgia Marauder time period when I was only like 15 or 16, I just started driving and I remember they found me somehow. I don't remember how. And it was when um, Donna was just breaking Donna summer and, Georgia had just been breaking Donna Summer's career wide open and they would bring me in there. And this is before I was like, I was just so excited to get to work with them. I was up in that studio all the time cutting tracks. This was before I even like asked for money. I was like, I'm so excited to be in this studio recording with all these people like Keith Forsey who did Billy Idol's records and, and Georgia Maroder and Harold Fultemeyer. And I was just like this young girl just stoked to be part of this machine. And, and it was later when I started realizing, Hey, I'm kind of all your tracks. Like I cut what a feeling when it was called, she's a lady, like what a feeling it was. She's a lady. I mean, Kara's song. And, and I was like, and the, um, Metropolis soundtrack, which is so culty that Giorgio did. I did a lot of those songs. I have recordings of me. I have so many, I could do a whole album or two of Georgia Maroder songs that I've cut between Keith Forsey and Georgia Moroder, Like, I could, if I could get permission, I could put together the coolest disco album of all mm. these vintage songs. That'd and, be awesome. um, it was, it was really cool. I'm going to have to ask Maroter if I could do that. That would be really cool. But mm. yeah. And so it was really neat being a part of that. And that's when, you know, I got, uh, had great training ground with that whole time period, you know? Um, yeah. I forget what the original question Well,
2: was, but... I have to say that, um, My favorite rendition of Sunset People is your version of it because Donna Summers makes it sound quite safe. Where you kind of give it that, because I mean, it's a gritty song, but you give it that gritty edge, which actually gives it a lot more meaning. And I love your version of Sunset People.
3: I've had things. I've actually done it live more recently, like at the Whiskey. Within the last couple of years, I did some live shows at the Whiskey Go Go, and I cut, I did some versions of that song. For fun it was such a blast you know just redoing that song so yeah that was fun
2: So, so if you did the um you know the guiding vocals for metropolis that means there's a version of you out there where you get to sing here she comes and love yeah. kills i have and-
3: the be- I have the dopest version of that song my voice is such a cool uh-huh. song and i have that with um um i have that track and i have the main song the main song mm. um we may be it's this beautiful
1: song I have you yeah. really over's excellent. I love your rendition of when the party's over it was great
3: that was brand new. I mean I just did that months ago i I was like that was one of my covid inspirations I such I a good it
1: was such a it was so you did that great. That was a really, really good rendition of that song. Thank
3: you and i love I'm a huge fan. I think he's the most talented guy out there is as Luc Capaldi. And I kept hearing this Lewis Capaldi songs, and I was right. like, Who is this guy? And he's this like funny Irish or Scottish. Is he Scottish or Irish? He's or British? He's forgive me. I don't know that. He's I'm got not that got accent. accent. <laughs> he's got a really cool accent. But he is like, to me, he is like, I really feel in alignment with his voice because he goes from these dark, rich places in his voice to these ripping tones, and he can go anywhere. And I just, you know, that's what I like to do with my voice. So that's why I thought I have to do that song. And I love, I think Billie Eilish oh, is brilliant. So beautiful. well, too. so I kind of found a balance of like some high pretty places. And then, and I was like, how am I going to cut these? And I call my buddy Lee miles music. If you guys go look up Lee miles, he's this is the most amazing. I mean, he was in a band called super naked, he's a genius guy. And he's become one of my music partners. Lee miles, uh, super naked. If you go look up super naked, he's a genius guy, but I called him up during COVID and he had just had a, a baby and and he was being very safe. And I was like, we got to cut. I got to cut this song.
0: Don't you know I'm no good for you? I've learned to lose, you can to afford to. So my shirt to stop you bleeding But nothing ever stops you leaving Quiet when I'm coming home and I'm all Like that, and I can lie, saying, like it, like that, like it, like.
3: Had another one called don't worry about me that was a francis song and i loved it and i loved it in honor of animals so i made my whole video in honor of animals and last chance for animals who i do a lot of work with they i said can you please send me the footage from the soy dog soy dog stuff not the gnarliest stuff but just some of the caged animals so i oh can god I video. and <laughs> and they were really they're always so great to me and they sent me footage and i just called my buddy diego is this brilliant guy who lives in he's um um, argentinian or something and um um he comes from somewhere i think there and i called him and i was like can you come he's my cinematographer and i was like i already know how i want to do both of those videos come and we shot it at my house and I kept him distant. I made him wear masks. This was when COVID was scary. And right. um, just he and I, just he and I went in and did it. And then when we edited, I went to his place. We both double-masked it. We sat there and edited these uh, Don't Worry About Me. And then I did So Pretty, the guitar version. There's a guitar yeah. version that's so pretty, yeah. too. And I did a video on that. And it was just really fun getting to put – I've got another song that's coming out, too, that's cool. a cover. I can't really say – um, much but it is a is a popular cover and it's gonna be released on a indie label and um, that's coming out too and that's gonna be really cool and I've shot mm-hmm. shot footage of that which I'm gonna edit for a video for that too so yeah. I feel awesome. the
0: fear for you. I'll cry your tears for you. I'll do anything I cancel It's
2: Before we get to my favorite album of yours, um, I think it's quite important as we sit here and talk about how there's a lot of cross-pollination in your career, because you said that ba- basically on Broadway. Uh, they say that Baby about Harry, the guys I did, too.
3: They say that about the guys <laughs> I
2: date. A lot but, of cross-pollination. But- <laughs> <laughs> but um Debbie Harry was in a failed Broadway musical, which you took and made a hit in LA. But then again, the song Mind Over Matter, Debbie Harry was supposed to do for the soundtrack for summer school, but because of contractual problems, you end up covering it and made yourself a nice dance hit without it for Mind Over Matter from Summer School. Oh,
3: that's interesting. I didn't ever thought about that. Actually, the thing that happened with Deborah Harry's song is I didn't really know, to be honest, um, they, I think she had had a single coming out around the same time or something was happening that was, the studio was worried there was going to be some conflict. I don't know what the conflict was to be birthed, but I think it was something like that. But that's really interesting. I never thought about that. But, um, yeah, on Mind Over Matter, there's actually, if you listen very closely, Deborah Harry singing on some of the backgrounds. So that's. <laughs>
0: that's
1: a great song. They, i love that
3: song because Waterman just had the same track so i think she's singing in the backgrounds on there somewhere which is truly like an honor because Deborah Harry is to me my favorite word is dope she is one of the dopest artists out there so i you know we all have projects you know it's you know not to puff myself up that i got to do some of her things but i've also been in projects that i lost or didn't didn't come to fruition that other people got to take out. But so everybody has those those moments in their journey for whatever reason. And I believe like sometimes, you know, there's reasons why yours didn't blow up and somebody else's did. And everybody gets those. I didn't just take, those weren't just like, she's had huge successes and I'm sure, you know, just everybody has those moments where, you know, where, Janet Jackson. They took and ran, pushed the buttons on Janet Jackson. We were here and here at the release party and then they pushed the buttons. And those were moments where I, where I, you know, I felt like everybody has their journey for a reason. And I really wanted children, to be honest. And, right. you know, I made sure that um, that was a priority for me. Like, I didn't want to be just an artist that had no family. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so, yeah, so like everybody has a reason why I think their things at different timings will blow up or not blow up. And for me, is that a cat or a dog?
2: It's my cat, is that Boo. A cat? <laughs> uh, a cat. Boo,
3: the
1: cat. Anyway,
2: here, that's Boo. Well,
1: here's what I got right here. I've got a Oh my God, that is cute. Ah, I've got like blue. three of them in the back room with my husband, keeping them quiet from barking mm. so I can talk to you. That is cute. Nice, you. What made you want to audition for The Voice? Because I really liked your performance on that, and I was really—I saw that Blake turned around like immediately. And what was it like working with him?
3: Um, uh, that was awesome. I mean, that was like—I was my sister would watch The Voice, and she'd always be like, "I love the show. I love the show, The Voice." I and really I was like, who "What you is it? Did they?" No, which was really interesting to me, but my fans did. My your fans were like, "What well, she can." But they, <laughs> I love that. But they they were be like, what are you doing on there? You should be a judge, you know.
1: That's what but, I was, was thinking. It's cool. like, why is she on there? She needs to be on the judging
3: committee. I'll be judging judge in one of those shows. Yeah, I'd like to be a judge on one of those shows. It would be fun. Um, but, yeah, that was another one of those things where I was hosting a show called Balcony TV LA. And for my friend Cindy, and it's this cool show. You can Google it. And I was hosting all these cool bands that were traveling, touring from all over the world. And we were doing them, uh, we did them on different balconies, but I did a lot at my own house on my own balcony. And I love music, so I loved interviewing beautiful, talented artists about their journey and how they wrote a certain song and what inspired them. And and I was having such a good time with that. And it came out of a moment when I had had like kind of went through a depression of like kind of like dark, a dark period, anxiety and depression. And, and, um, and I had just come out of all that. And when I came out of the depression, I realized that the reason why I was having the depression and the anxiety was because I stopped doing all the things that I love to do, and that's a big deal. Like if you stop doing that stuff, your light, your light goes out.
1: Yeah. And
3: when your light goes out, mm-hmm. you get anxiety and you get depression. And so I had just woken up to the fact that oh my god, I have to start saying yes to everything—music and everything, singing and everything, everything. And my friend said, "Would you sing on balcony TV?" That was the first. Uh, things she had said, would you sing on balcony TV LA for me? And I was like, Oh my God, I'm a little nervous. I haven't been singing lately. She goes, just you on guitar, just you on guitar. And I was like, okay. So I said yes to that. And then that led me to hosting it. And then she called me one day and said, I hope you're not mad at me, but I got you an audition for The Voice. I really believe in you. And I was like, Oh no, I can't do awesome. that show. No, my kids are going to think I'm so silly and it's embarrassing. What are you doing? You know, cause my daughters were like young women. They were going to be like, mom, you you've already had a successful career. Why are you doing that? And I was like, Oh, whatever. And I was like, sh- my kids didn't realize how important it was to me still, you know? And she said, just do it, do it for me. You know, this woman, Cindy, that I now have a great friendship with. And, and I went and did that audition and, and I, I did it for fun. And I brought in Lee Miles, my partner, that was my first working with him. And he was there with me on that audition. And I kept booking audition after audition. And then after you know it, it was like, one day I was watching The Voice with my sister thinking, boy, Blake Shelton's fun. I would want to be on Blake's team if I was on that show. (laughs) Thinking that lightly, just lightly thinking that. And the next minute I'm on the TV looking at Blake front on instead of from the rear view of the television version. I was actually on the stage looking out. It was a very surreal moment. There was a moment on my blind Where you can see my eyes, and I was like almost like holy fuck! Are you (laughs) kidding me? Like I was literally like, is this really happening? Like, am I really like singing in front of fifty million people all over the world? And it was actually an incredible experience. I have a lot of gratitude to my friend Cindy, and I gratitude. I have a lot of gratitude for all the people. The, the people that believe in me today still that will say why don't you put another record EG and I'm like don't I don't for that and then they'll be like no and I'm like you're right I'm not let's do it you know
2: is i mean one of your most personal albums which i think is one of the best albums you ever came out with is tearing down the walls which is you know very simply done acoustic and and the the lyrics i mean it really the other music that you did you, you tell that you're a really good singer songwriter but tearing down the walls it also felt very very personal that project
3: it really was first of all the album cover i was pregnant i was like eight months pregnant on that album cover that's why you can only see me from here to here, but you can kind of see white. And it was because I was covering my eight-month pregnant belly. I was pregnant during the whole making of that movie with my second daughter. Um, and uh, that record was that record was very autobiographical. And that was one of my favorite records ever. And I co-produced that record with um, um, Harvey Mason Jr., who's gone on to produce so many huge records and, huge soundtracks and he's so talented and this guy Brad Gilderman um I co-produced it with those guys and it was a very very heartfelt record and um uh I don't remember what happened with the release I think it was one point I think niall rogers was just like you should self-release it I'll show you what to do and I wished I hadn't done that And I had another label that wanted it and I ended up trying to self-release it and had my own label and self-run the label and it was just a big money pit and
0: mm.
3: you know I just wished I would to let somebody else run it but I learned a lot from that record and it's still a great record and people still love it and no matter what it's one of my favorite albums to date and um, it's out there so people can get it stuff, yeah Say Your troubles got
0: you feeling down all your faith is gone Oh, know the damage broken hearts can do But things will change, you're not alone Though it's hard for you to believe Lift your head, take my hand, I'll dry your Rest your head. comfort you. Oh, no! It seems the hard times never end. But things will change. Not alone. Though it's hard for you to believe, lift your head.
2: Now you did a one woman oh, show called Listen Closely where basically you basically decide to open up about yourself. Um so what was that experience like doing a one woman show yeah. and be and to be so bare in front of an audience?
1: Exactly.
3: I like being naked. You know, I like being <laughs> like I like being I like being completely radically honest about things. I really do. I feel a lot of freedom from that. I like, I like speaking the truth. And that play was about being naked completely. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, I had had a lot of trauma and I remember I, I started writing a book. I was like, I got to write a book. So many cool things in my journey and also a lot of painful things, but I've learned so much and everything was an opportunity to learn. And so I wrote this book, started writing this manuscript thing. Like it was like raw. It was almost like a memoir. I just started writing, 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 writing. And it almost made me feel sick to my stomach because I had never really looked at some of the things that I was writing about. I just experienced them and moved on. And I didn't even experience them. They were so tragic and painful. I just kind of, okay, let's move on. Like I never even dealt with it. But when I started writing that manuscript, it, it had, it kept reminding me of how, how big these things were. And then, I decided to turn it into a one-woman autobiographical musical because a lot of the music I was writing at the time were totally coordinating with what I was going through at the time. And then my friend Eliza Schneider, who's this brilliant language coach, writer, she's done a lot of one-woman shows. And I called her and I said, hey, can you help me put this manuscript into a one-woman show? Because she was good at that. It was already written. It was more like editing and helping me tie the edges together. And... um And she was like, yeah, sure. So I hired her. And then she said, now call Sal Romeo, who's a brilliant director, a theater director. And then he started directing me on it. And we took literally, Eliza had me lay all the pages of the manuscript all over the living room. I had this giant living room, stone floor living room, and we laid all the pages out. And Eliza and I just started pulling the pages and moving them and putting them together and getting rid of some. And we were like, this is what we're going to work with for the one-woman show. And, And then Sal... Whereas he was directing me for that, it was super painful sometimes because there were moments where uh, I was—it was really painful—and I would stop. Mm-hmm. I would have to stop, and I would just feel all this sadness over things that I never dealt with. So it was very healing, and especially the loss of the John Eric Hexam death, which was yeah. pretty tragic for a 22-year-old, and yeah. and then this boyfriend I had named Marshall, who was like crazy junkie and so it was a lot of r- waking up to the things that I just sort of quickly dealt with and moved on, but I never really dealt with the, f- the feelings of it and the scariness of it. And this director just nursed me through it, Sal Romeo. He's brilliant. And then the play came out and it was like very successful. Standing room. It's all on the internet. You can get it. It's I had right. it filmed. And my cousin is Mr. Brainwash. You know Mr. Brainwash, the graffiti artist? He's a pretty famous mm-hmm. uh, graffiti artist, painter. Uh, that's my cousin. And at the time, all my cousins are famous painters and artists, and
1: that's awesome.
3: And yeah, and uh, Mr. Brainwash, my cousin, came and filmed the whole thing for me on three cameras. He brought some of his crew in, and he filmed it. And then he said, "Here's the footage. You put it together now." And I edited it with my editors, and it was just an incredible experience. And it's out there, and it's one of my most. Again, that um, was one of my most. Besides my children, that was one of my other moments that we were. In.
0: We'll
2: A lot of our audience members out there um they probably didn't know that you actually were you suffered from a lot of um, body image um um you know body image problems the way that you looked at yourself and you actually discussed it and listened closely which is basically um a campaign that you're actually working with now I mean, and you did really see the fantastic video and song so pretty so do you want to tell us a little bit of um what you've been doing about giving a positive body image message out out to the world
3: um, the so pretty, the so pretty thing was. Um, now I'd been doing, you know, my career stuff, and my daughters are millennials, and you know they're young and they're they're all about social media and watching those girls grow up with this.
1: Yeah, all exactly. day long. Exactly. <laughs> all day long.
3: That was when I was just like, oh my god, they're not getting to be present at all. They're not getting to see what's right in front of them because they're seeing themselves all the time which is a lot of pressure. And I remember thinking, um, that's when the So Pretty, I started writing with my friends, Elijah and Elliot, um, um, and these two guys, and they're so talented. And um, I remember we started writing that song and we were going to write for other people. And then I remember thinking, I got to do this song. This song is really important because I had the whole kind of a concept for it. And they were like, that's great. And I said, it's like such an important message today, especially for someone like me, who's always been about trying to like keep yourself looking good and I'm getting older and you know, how much can you, and then at some point it's like, can you ever feel okay? Can you ever feel pretty enough, thin enough, beautiful enough, especially when there's apps and you're trying to keep up with the filtered face
1: and all that opposed
3: to your real face and you see your real Mm. face and you see a filtered face and you're like, I want to, I just want to be a filtered person always, you know? So that's when the so pretty song came out and, I decided to do this so pretty movement, which was the video, which was all about, you know, why I got to be so pretty. How come, why, why can't we just go inside and look inside and see how beautiful people are on the inside? And, and then you'll see how beautiful they are because I think people are much more beautiful when they don't care about how they look. Like I always would meet the hottest guys when I wasn't dressed up, when I didn't have all the makeup on my face was when I would meet the dopest guys. I'd be like, because I was feeling free and I wasn't busy. Like trying to keep it all together. And there's something very beautiful about a natural person being themselves. That is beautiful. And so that's when that song came about.
2: It's liberating too. It
3: was liberating. And I struggled with all that when I was younger, eating disorders and all that stuff, all that body image stuff and needing to be thinner and thinner and anorexic, you know, all the anorexic behaviors I did that was, you know, really like, can you close that please? Really, um, you know really it was tough times for me when i was young so i dealt with i dealt with all that eating disorder stuff when i was young and i see my daughters and i see how the pressure my daughters are the hunter daily on instagram and i am not mike tyson on instagram they're both my daughters names and um <laughs> if you look at them they're both incredibly beautiful inside and out and they're both incredibly talented the hunter daily and I am not Mike Tyson, but, and so it was scary for me to see them going down that. Now the path that everyone is, which is looking at their faces constantly. And, um, you know, I just try to keep reminding everybody, like stay connected to the bigger things. You know, like I really do believe like what you put in front of a spiritual life or being kind or being of service will be taken away from you. It's like, keep yourself off yourself. Keep doing things that matter. So that you can keep expanding and you can keep representing things that are really important. And art is supposed to be like a messenger of reaching people's souls, reaching people's feelings, reaching people's emotions. It's not supposed to be like telling, you know, it's not supposed to be so much about the physical. And so, you know, when my kids are being all self-obsessed, I'm like, you're you're looking looking at yourself so much. You're not going in enough. You know, you need to go Mm. out, get off yourself. Be of service. Go do some animal rescue work. Go, which is which, which leads me to my most favorite thing now, which is my animal. It's always been in my life. I've been an animal activist my whole career. If you look back, there's always pictures of me in animal activism and petitioning, I love that. And protesting. But today, it's bigger than ever. Like to me, it is the priority, and everything I do with my music or my art, I do so I can steer people to go do bigger things, which is to help be kind to animals, to donate to animal troops that are out there fighting to help mm-hmm. the, hum- the inhumanity that goes on with animals and the animal abuse and the animal exploitation. Like that is my purpose on the planet today. I will use my voice for that. It's a I'll good purpose.
1: Excellent purpose.
3: Yeah. And I would say mm-hmm. everybody go check out Last Chance for Animals. Donate to Last Chance for Animals. I would say go check out Toby's Small Dog Rescue, T-O-B-I-E-S. That's a smaller organization I work for. But those are different spectrums of animal where they're helping animals, and those are people I work for directly. So that's it.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, we want to thank you, EG Daily, for um, joining us on the Literary License Podcast. Thank you so much for doing this interview with us.
1: It's a total pleasure meeting you.
2: And we'll yeah. include all the links and how they'll be able to donate to and help yeah. out with the animal charities and, and the other oh, um, be awesome. charities. And they will be on our newsletter yeah. that goes out once a month. And we also include those on Easy. our website and in the um, the links to this show. So will thank you, send you me again. To,
3: yeah, make sure to send me all that stuff in email. And um, yeah, that'd be awesome. And it's I'll really nice to talking us. to you guys. So, thank you. I nice would love nice. that. Just shoot me an email. It. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: If I wear my high heels, would you like me better? If I smile right there, would you like me better now?
2: feel beautiful on the inside and I know who I am I love myself
1: I am strong I'm independent you're so beautiful like a fresh blooming flower